This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m. in Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Uh, welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Sherry Goodman is our guest tonight. She is a former Pentagon official, and you might have seen her on Four Corners in the film The Age of Consequences. Vivian Langford went to the Melbourne University to hear her speak about how the Defence Forces are highly aware of climate change as a threat multiplier. Sherry was in Australia to talk to the government and Defence Force people in the hope that they will influence decision makers. Ian Dunlop, former head of the Australian Coal Association, went with her and he speaks briefly tonight. David Spratt, Luke Taylor and Mr Malte Meinshausen all speak from a vivid awareness of how little time we have to reverse the climate crisis. This is a good example of not just preaching to the choir, but reaching out to new and powerful audiences. And breaking news, just last week the Australian Senate has resolved to set up an inquiry into the issue of climate change and national security. They will, they will report back on the 4th of December this year. The motion was proposed by Senator Scott Ludlam, and we will put links on the BZE podcast page to this inquiry, plus a new report which comes out this Wednesday from Breakthrough. It is called Disaster Alley, Climate Change, Conflict and Risk. If you know people who think that climate action is just for tree-hugging greenies and you like this show, please send the podcast to, to your friends all around. Now, over to Vivian as she introduces Sherry Goodman. But before we talk about the U.S. defense and what the military might make of climate change, let's just look at really what it is. The larger threat of climate change in the future is not just from stronger cyclones or bigger floods, but from classes of irreversible tipping points and catastrophes. I'm thinking of a shutdown in the North Atlantic thermohaline circulation. I'm thinking of a permanent dieback in the Amazon forest. I'm thinking of the runaway escape of methane hydrates from melting permafrost. I'm thinking of the failure of the Indian monsoon. And I'm thinking of the accelerated melting of the Greenland ice cap. These are not catastrophes for which we can find current examples. But the headlines are starting to happen. Here are some recent ones. Recent bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef, much worse than initial estimates. Persistent drought in Peruvian Amazon, followed by great fires. Warming causes floods that displace thousands in Peru. Gigantic 
gas discharge vents discovered in the Ob Delta of northern Siberia. These are real news headlines and the thought of the military forces of the world taking it on without making a big shamothel of it really frightens me. Jerry Goodman has urged the United States military to think about how these headlines affect them, not just about putting up walls. As we see in the film The Age of Consequence, one reaction is to put up walls. The state of India has put a wall around its neighbour Bangladesh with thousands of armed troops patrolling that wall to stop any climate refugees or other sorts of refugees getting into India. So really... That is one response, a military security type of response. But I think we need to use this discussion as an initial stepping stone into much broader discussions. And I know Ian Dunlop touring the country with Cherie and I hope they were meeting highly placed people in our military and in our government. Cherie calls climate change a threat multiplier. Here is an edited version of her talk at Melbourne University, followed by a discussion with David Spratt. Uh, as many of you know, Breakthrough has been leading a campaign to promote this film across a range of different audiences right across the country. Uh, to further expose the film and the key messages, we approached one of the key contributors to the film, uh, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defence and Environmental Security, Sherry Goodman. Ian Dunlop, who is an energy expert and a former chair of the Australian Coal uh, Association, uh, has been instrumental in organising access to key political figures and the business community to be able to introduce Sherry to a wide range of people. Ian has been accompanying Sherry for the past week across the country, Melbourne, Canberra, and arriving back just today uh, in Melbourne. Well, thanks, Luke, and uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, speak to you this evening. I'm not going to say very much, other than the fact that it's pretty clear to anybody who pays any attention that the discussion on climate change in this country is totally dysfunctional at the political level. Um, we're just not coming to grips with the real problem. And the moment the word is raised, we instantly default to talk about important issues, but basically secondary ones like, do we price carbon, do we have an emissions trading system, and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the real issues behind this never really get discussed. We've never had an honest discussion about what climate change does mean, and how are we going to address it? Uh, we have talked to a range of some very senior people. The response has been very good because I think basically behind it all, there is an enormous degree of frustration that people know there is a very big problem that needs to be addressed, which they're not being able to get at because politically, the whole argument, the whole debate is completely damned done. And some, somehow that's what we have to break. So the whole idea of this is to get that different dialogue started, get a different narrative, um, which is moving from the recognition of the real problems that are already occurring to the fact that we need to now talk about the solutions in a positive sense and getting behind making them happen. And if we can turn climate change into that sort of a positive uh, approach of cooperation, both nationally and globally, then I think we can start to move forward. But the adversarial system we currently have at the moment is not going to achieve it. So with that, I'd just like to hand over to Sherry to talk about 
we're not going to shout at film again to talk about how she went through the process of getting real support behind this issue uh, in her personal context. We're going to go right to the CNA Military Advisory Board, which 10 years ago I founded with a group of senior retired U.S. generals and admirals as a way to both galvanize uh, attention to climate as a security issue and also to really begin to explore this as a serious subject for analysis. Uh, CNA is an um, analytic organization comprised primarily of uh, PhDs in the hard sciences and economists, does a lot of work uh, for the U.S. military um, and for other national security leaders. The military leaders that I brought together for this project uh, were almost all ones that I had worked with in, during the eight years I served as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security. And we came together and spent a year uh, working on this, learning from the nation's leading climate scientists in the U.S., and we also traveled to the U.K. and met with many leading climate scientists at the U.K. Med Office. We wanted to really understand climate as a security issue. Uh, many of them approached this, well, they were, they were sort of skeptics themselves. They said, sure, we, we, you know, I'm a warfighter. I don't really, you know, this is not what I do, but if you ask me, since, you know, we've worked together for a long time, we'll go on this journey with you. And uh, they did. And to a T, everyone had their own sort of aha moment when they realized that, oh, yeah, this is really, really important. Uh, the chairman of our uh, military advisory board, who's in the movie, the first chairman, General Gordon Sullivan, uh, who was the chief of staff of the United States Army and really reset the whole army at the end of the Cold War, a marvelous leader. Uh, I'll tell you, his story was, uh, his aha moment, he's from um, New England. He said, uh, he's from Massachusetts, he said, he said, Sherry, the maple trees, they're just not going to be here anymore. I can already see that we're losing, you know, the maple trees where I, you know, where I grew up. It became very deeply personal. And I, ever, I'd say each member of the board had their own story after they absorbed the science and understood that, yes, this is, you know, this, this is evidence-based. This is not a belief system. This is facts. And so we got into it and we said, here's some of the summary of the findings from our very first report in 2007 um, that imposes a serious threat to America's national security. We characterize climate change as a threat multiplier uh, for instability in some of the fragile regions of the world, uh, adds to tensions in stable regions, and that climate, national security, and energy dependence are deeply related. Climate change is exacerbating existing international stressors like poverty, political tensions, environmental degradation, social tensions, and other conditions that have the potential to lead to state instability and conflict. Our second study was on the nexus of climate, national security, and energy. And sort of our watchword from this study what, which was called Powering America's Defense, Energy, and the Risk to National Security. It looked at the security risks inherent in our current energy posture and energy choices 
that we can make to make to enhance our national security, the impact of climate change on energy choices and national security, and the role the Department of Defense can play as a market leader in the nation's approach to energy security and climate change. The U.S. military is the nation's single largest energy user. It's about 1% of total U.S. energy use. And so, um, you know, oil is essential to the war-fighting enterprise. So we said DOD really needs to understand its energy use and its carbon impact at all levels of operations. In other words, know your carbon footprint. We're listening to Cherie Goodman. She's a former Pentagon and U.S. Department of Defense official. She helped the Defense Department see the connection between climate change and security. In her talk, she showed us a photo of trucks laden with fuel in the desert. And those, by the way, are sort of trucks in either, probably in Afghanistan, hauling fuel to the front. Uh, and we learned the hard way with eight out of ten of combat, eight out of ten vehicles deployed for combat in Iraq and Afghanistan were not about combat. They were about moving fuel, water, and ammunition to the front. That puts unnecessarily the lives of soldiers and sailors at risk. Uh, and so we've been trying to do something about that in the last decade. In 2014, we upgraded our 2007 climate change assessment, finding that risks are accelerating, becoming a catalyst for conflict. Climate change is happening today, and we no longer have time to waste arguing about how to address it. So today we're going to explore some of these threats to national security and international security. Our military does more than fight wars. You know, it's the 911 force for natural disasters. And increasingly, we've had to bring out the military and our National Guard and our reserve forces to respond to natural disasters at home. Um, from Katrina to Rita that devastated uh, the Gulf Coast region to in the southeastern U.S. Uh, to Superstorm Sandy, uh, the military was key in providing support services in all of those major storms and many others. Superstorm Sandy in New York, New Jersey area cut power along much of the eastern seaboard and flooded lower Manhattan uh, and knocked out power for weeks uh, in many areas. The military, the U.S. military with Guard and Reserve literally turned the lights back on in Manhattan. So that's important. Next, we train like we fight. So extreme weather impacts military readiness and deployments, and higher temperatures put our sons and daughters at physical risk when training and deploying. When it's too hot, the military can't conduct training with live fire or explosions for risk of wildfires in training facilities, particularly in the U.S. Southwest. And when the temperatures are above... um, 90 degrees Fahrenheit, I think that's about 32 and a half centigrade is what I'm told. We call that a black flag condition. Now that may not seem that hot. I know you get hot, very hot temperatures here. We get very hot temperatures in the U.S. South, Southwest as well. But we're seeing a, a market increase in black flag days that limit training opportunities. Um, And also you can see that the military is deploying in regions of the world, particularly in the Middle East, uh, some of the hottest record temperatures on Earth are being recorded. And it's not safe 
for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to deploy in extreme heat due to risk of exhaustion. So that affects military readiness as well. Okay. Oops. All right. Um, not only are people at risk, but military infrastructure and bases are at risk from a changing climate, particularly from sea level rise. This is a um, map of the U.S. East Coast, and you can see the, the uh, major military bases identified on this map. The most pressing issue we're dealing with is sea level rise combined with storm surge at our coastal installations. By, 20, by 2100, we expect sea level to rise one to three meters at many coastal military installations. Um, and many of them will have difficulty deploying the force because they're vulnerable to flooding and inundation. Uh, infrastructure and ports will not be of much use if they are underwater. Energy security in the U.S. military. So, the mil as I said, the military is the largest institutional consumer of oil in the world. Um, so now we're looking at innovation in recent military energy programs. The Army has something they call the Net Zero Ener Initiative. The Navy has Green Fleet. And the Air Force has an energy plan. Uh, these initiatives are working to reduce the military's reliance on fossil fuel, also to find renewable solutions like solar. Um, that's wind powering the uh, Navy's Arctic sublab. Uh, and there's a, a lot of work going on on microgrids and smart grids to reduce uh, dependence on a vulnerable grid system. Our current Secretary of Defense, General Mad Dog, Jim Mattis. He is President Trump's Secretary of Defense. He is a great leader, someone that I've worked with over many years. And he called a decade ago when he was commanding our troops in Iraq to, for us to be unleashed from the tether of fuel. Uh, and that's because, as I showed earlier, he was concerned about loss of uh, soldiers' lives convoying fuel to the front. Um, and he personally shared with me when he was named to the position that he hoped to continue his unleashing efforts once he became Secretary of Defense. He has also made very strong statements recently about climate change uh, as a factor for instability uh, affecting the tro our troops where they're deployed today. So the bottom line is climate change is a major concern in the U.S. military. Um, you say you're either going to pay for it now or you're going to pay much more later. Okay, let's turn to international security. Climate change can decrease agricultural productivity, lead to droughts and floods, force migration of vulnerable populations, ruin critical infrastructure, and spread disease. These impacts, if not managed properly, can undermine fragile governments. So, Pakistan. You know, this is a nuclear-armed country uh, politically unstable and presents serious threats from climate-driven destabilization. Uh, you know, it's a high disaster risk country. The arid areas are vulnerable to droughts. Coastal areas face flooding and seawater intrusion. And as you can see on the map, it has significant low-lying areas which are subject to monsoon flooding. In 2010, uh, that monsoon flooding affected over 20 million people and caused estimated economic losses of over $40 billion. And with melting of glaciers, increase in flooding and droughts changes monsoons, Pakistan is going to be hard-pressed to respond to these disasters. 
Internally, Pakistan has divisive water allocation rules. It's also got one of the most inefficient agricultural sectors in the world, which favors irrigation over power generation, Punjab over Sin, and which are based on unreasonably high estimates of continued water availability. In addition, 100 million people are dependent on fresh water that comes across the border from India and China, presenting additional opportunities for conflict. And a, uh, a recent report warns that Pakistan could become water scarce as early as 2025. Okay, Bangladesh, another climate uh, hotspot, perhaps the most vulnerable country to climate change in the world. The majority of 160 million Bangladeshis live in low-lying areas along major river basins there in the coastal area. Uh, and should sea level rise, as little as one meter, over 20 million Bengalis could lose their homes and their livelihoods and be forced to migrate towards India, which has already built a wall and a fence to keep Bangladeshis out. Okay, moving to another region of the world, the Arctic. Uh, a whole new ocean is opening up as the Arctic melts at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And we see now expanded opportunities for maritime shipping routes, both intra-Arctic and trans-Arctic, increased access to energy, minerals, and fisheries, and potentially increased competition between many countries to gain access to those resources. The biggest shift in global commerce since the opening of the Suez Canal will be an ice-free Arctic where Iceland becomes the new Singapore. <laughs> there are many other strategic considerations in the Arctic as well, changing geopolitics with Russia, sinking permafrost on which many people depend, uh, risk of accelerating environmental degradation from oil spills, and pollution caused by new resource extraction. What about the Trump effect? The new administration, while it hasn't pulled out of Paris and maybe they won't, they're trying to walk, they're walking back many um, climate executive orders signed by the last administration. But the, you know, the, the president's budget is never accepted really by any administration, you know, off, totally off the bat by Congress. So there's a lot that's going to happen over the next few months as Congress uh, examines the budget and puts its own take. You know, what I want to leave you with is that the advanced energy transition in the U.S. is continuing. And our commitment and ability to meet the Paris Climate Agreement continues as well for two very important reasons. One is that the energy transition is happening in the U.S. for economic reasons. Uh, there are, you know, we're less and less reliant on coal. There are three times as many jobs being created uh, in renewables today as there are in the fossil energy sector. The, the economics of uh, coal don't work anymore in the U.S. And, uh, you know, what we need to do is help those workers transition into other areas. And that is beginning to happen because there are very good wind resources in many of the areas that have also been coal-producing areas in the U.S. There's also abundant solar. As there is here in this country, you know, Europe, you know, one of the most abundant countries with the most abundant resources in wind and solar, as well as in fossil energy. So um, you have a lot of choices to make. 
Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Decades has been in climate change as a security issue, which is about national security, but it's also the security of people and peoples. Um, it's when we talk about displacement, migration, drought, water and food shortages. Um, it's climate change seen through the, the lens of human security, I guess. Um, this is very different from the traditional green uh, environmental framing of, of climate as, as an environmental issue. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how this human national security frame has been useful in the United States engaging conservatives and republicans uh, in an issue that they may otherwise not want to engage with because we do have a similar problem here. Uh, Well, if you've seen the film, you see uh, um, General Sullivan uh, in the very first uh, press conference that we did when we released the report back in 2007, and he he said he has a line. He says, you know, as a group, we are not your traditional environmentalists. And you know what we often what what they often like to say is, you know, I'm not your regular tree hugger. You know, although many of them care passionately about the environment, but they are war fighters first. Um, and so that. Uh, enables the message to be heard by people who don't think that they are tree huggers, don't, you know, wouldn't self-select to come to this evening, for example. Okay? So um, we were oh, we've always been trying not to just preach to the converted, but to have other audiences understand us uh, and understand the reality of climate as a security threat. And so when a warfighter can sit in a room um, with conservatives uh, and say, look, you know, this is why um, this is a threat. You know, this is why this matters just in the way I worry about terrorism and cyber attacks. This is why I'm worried about climate security. And this is what we need to do about it. And this is a real security issue. They listen. And that's enabled us to carry the conversation to communities around the U.S. uh, that are mostly in what we call red states, um, uh, Republican states, and also members of Congress um, who are conservatives. And to begin, obviously we haven't fully changed the conversation or we wouldn't have the leadership we have right now, but we have been able to do that in a variety of, of ways, uh, to the point where now, uh, just in the last number of months, in the Republican-controlled House, U.S. House of Representatives, there is a new Climate Solutions Caucus that has bipartisan, with an equal number of Republicans uh, and Democrats, and many of the members are from districts that have military installations in 
and that might change the politics on the North Queensland coast. Uh, we, we have a considerable number of places. Um, continuing that question in the Australian context, um, you said this week that climate change and tonight is already acknowledged as a national security threat in the US, but that uh, I think it's fair to say in some recent think tank reports have said that Australia is somewhat behind in engaging in this issue uh, that some experts have called the longest war. Um, after several days here talking to politicians, think tanks, the military, uh, public forums, where do you think are the forces that will uh, take this conversation forward in Australia? We did have some very, uh, I did have some very interesting um, dynamic conversations with uh, Australian defence and environment and um, other officials in Canberra over the last few days. And I came away from that very impressed um, with the capabilities in the defense, in the Department of Defense uh, and in the Energy and Environment Department and in, in some of the other related agencies. Um, had sort of an interagency type of group that gathered yesterday. And I think there's a lot of good work that is underway right now. Do you ever get the feeling that you're not getting the full story when you're reading the paper or watching TV? That's because three owners, News Limited, Fairfax and APN News, hold approximately 98% of the media sector. Two of these owners, News and Fairfax, hold 88% of print media assets in the country. So, and... We here at 3CR, we like to give you the rest of the story. That's the ones, that's the pieces of information that you're not getting from these huge dominant out, uh, media outlets. Um, so 3CR was formed 41 years ago to counter capitalist media. We are developing, we are delivering radio for people by the people. We ask all our supporters to donate. And we here at the BZE radio show have not reached our target yet, and we really need your help. Because one hour of radio, the one hour that you listen to every week from here, it costs $90 to make. Um, so if you are able to, if you have any money in your change pocket left from the weekend, would you please call us uh, on 94198377? and make a pledge, give us some money. Anything over $2 is tax deductible. Uh, or you can do it online uh, at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. We really, really need your help. And uh, next up, uh, Sherry Goodman answers the questions on climate refugees and geoengineering. You talked about Bangladesh, a one metre sea level rise inundates 20% of the land, displaces 30 million people. Uh, on Tuesday night at the Lowy Institute, uh, the National Security Analyst, um, Alan Dupont, I think shocked a few people when he said, in coming decades this century uh, in Asia, we could be looking at uh, that 150 million displaced people was a plausible figure. Um, writing in The Guardian yesterday, uh, your quote is saying, we do need to rethink the governance for refugees better to reflect the types of refugees we face today. Current governance structures are just inadequate for the modern era. So my question is, what does that rethink look like? Well, 
I mean, that's that's a that's a great and that's a tough question. We might have to rethink, you know, the whole UN structure to adequately um, rethink the the uh, antiquated uh, UN Refugees Convention. But I, I think we're not going to be able. I think the migration is unfortunately going to occur faster than we're able to reform uh, UN governance structures. So we'll we will. Um, undoubtedly have to come up with a, a, a system that better accommodates um, people who are going to be on the move uh, because of economic and climate um, displacement. You know, our, our current system uh, really focuses more on political prosecution, and we have now what's happened with this wave of populism that has... Um, you know, we see in the United States and across Europe uh, has this this sort of fear of the other as a sort of dimension to it, and this sense that um, those who you know are are knocking at democracy's door are the the mob at the gates, and that is, um, I think that's not what democracies stand for. Um, and yes, there are you know there are always limits to migra- you know to uh, migration. But you know, for myself, I'm the daughter of Holocaust refugees, and you know, if, if my parents hadn't been able to escape Germany just prior to World War II, I wouldn't even be here um, and get into the United States. But most could not get in, and and so. You know, I th- I think we're going to have to rethink about how we accommodate um, people who are going to be forced to move. And frankly, David, I must say, I don't yet have all those answers. I, I'd be a much smarter lawyer, I guess, uh, if if I could, if I did already have those. But I think it's going to take a um, very deliberate effort. Uh, I know that uh, many legal scholars are beginning to think about this. I think it's going to take uh, governments coming together in the way they haven't before. Uh, hopefully, it won't take a crisis of epic proportions uh, to make that happen. But uh, unfortunately, you know, if history is any guide, it often takes a disaster to uh, enable people to realize they need to think and act differently. We're listening to Cherie Goodman. She's a former Pentagon and U.S. Department of Defense official. She helped the Defense Department see the connection between climate change and security. Okay, this is my first question this week about geoengineering here in Australia. Um, You know, geoengineering is being explored in the U.S. um, in scientific circles and in a few other circles as well. I, you know, I'm not the scientific expert on it, so I'm not going to speak to that piece. But I'm, I'm deeply concerned that we don't understand, we don't understand what the impact of geoengineering would be, even if we understand the science and the technology. Um, there are potentially a lot of unintended consequences of geoengineering, and uh, and also. You know what? It's it's a little bit like you know the nuclear threat in some way. Once you you know once once it's used in one place, how are you going to contain its use somewhere else? And, and will it you know even if it's potentially a beneficial use in one region, 
you know, what's going to happen, uh, you know, when somewhere else, another competitor. So I, I am, um, you know, while we we may need some very dramatic solutions, I, I'm not, I haven't, I'm not convinced that this is going to be the right one yet. You're listening to 3CR Radio. My heart pumped right Whenever someone talks about my time is shut uh, Who gets that foxglove snitch And loaded it with poison like a puffer fish Why don't anybody feel like crying for the summer To somebody with the hazel eyes Why don't anybody feel like crying for the summer To nobody with the hazel eyes
Hello, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Uh, we have Vivian Langford tonight speaking to uh, Sherry Goodman. Um, in the next bit, she Sherry answers questions about how the army can be deployed to help both in extreme weather events and to help draw down carbon to prevent these massive disruptions. We're listening to Cherie Goodman. She's a former Pentagon and U.S. Department of Defense official. She helped the Defense Department see the connection between climate change and security. When the Age of Consequences film came out, I came to understand that there was also a report which came out about the same time as your first report called The Age of Consequences. And it had three scenarios, and there was a low, a medium, and a high. And I just want to read the medium one to you because... It really struck me. So the, the, the medium scenario was one in which they explored the world with three degrees of warming, which is roughly the Paris target, and half a metre of sea level rise. And I'll read the scenario. In this scenario, nations around the world will be overwhelmed by the scale of change and pernicious challenges such as pandemic disease. The internal cohesions of nations will be under great stress, including in the US, both as a result of a dramatic rise in migration and changes in agricultural patterns and water availability, all the things you've talked about tonight. The flooding of coastal communities around the world, particularly in the Netherlands, the US, South Asia and China, has the potential to challenge regional and even national identities, which I think is a particular way of saying something much more severe. Armed conflict between nations over resources such as the Nile and its tributaries is likely and nuclear war is possible. The social consequences range from increased religious fervor to outright chaos. In this scenario, climate change provokes a permanent shift in the relationship of humankind to nature. My question is, are our top military, our political leaders, our society capable of understanding that this will be the consequences of failing to radically reduce emissions. Can people actually get their heads around what's going to happen? You know, I come from a world of planning and scenarios and, and uh, foresight, and so I, I think that there are many people in the defense and security community who are willing to uh, envision uh, different futures, as ugly as they might be. Uh, the question comes down to not whether you can, in, you know, whether you can envision it, but whether there's a political will to act to change it. That is the deeper and harder question because that involves, you know, in a democracy, our elected leadership uh, to have to exert that political will uh, to actually implement the change. Just before we have all these questions. Um, this week on the media, you called in, uh, our region in terms of extreme weather and consequences, uh, disaster alley. Uh, and it was a, a, a phrase that the media picked up, and I think the Guardian ran with it. Um, let's just talk concretely about uh, a scenario in, in, in Asia, in, in disaster alley. Can you speculate a little bit, for example, we could talk about Vietnam and the Mekong, which you have. Let's talk about the Philippines and how you think climate change could, could play out in a place which has a, um, a, a sizable immigrant population in Australia as well. As, as one example about how we think about integrating climate change into thinking about security and the future of the region. Okay, thank you, David. Well, you know, um, the reason that, th that this region... 
I, that I characterize this region as disaster alley is because you have the most populous cities in the world in this region, uh, in most of them in very low-lying areas uh, with um, with populations, many of them living at the subsistence level, and uh, also subject to the extreme weather events, cyclones, um, and other extremes, and typhoons, and other storms. So in the Philippines, you have a country that's already uh, politically unstable, that has a, a, a growing insurgency, an authoritarian leader, already some political and social unrest, um, and also uh, geographically is in a region that's prone to, to typhoons and storms. You know, it had this major typhoon Hainan not that many years ago. Uh, and with sea level rise and another extreme, you know, a catastrophic weather event, um, one could, you know, you could see how that could tip that country over into much broader instability and social unrest that could send uh, many, uh, many Filipinos fleeing, um, you know, fleeing their country and create just a, a natural disaster on a, a scale much wider than what we have seen to date. So I think that's an area about which um, we should be particularly concerned. Okay, um, we'll take some questions from the audience. Um, I'd like questions rather than commentaries, please. And I might just take them three questions and you can respond so we we'll get some more in. Um, I'm wondering the work you've done, whether you've discussed a lot about military providing support to civil power, because one of the features of a lot of disasters has been breakdown and the triage by governments that working class areas just flood and other areas get protected. And we've seen situations like in Thailand in 2011 where 50,000 troops were put on the streets and you know, working class people were busting down dikes to let the waters out of their areas. Hurricane Katrina is another example. You know, is the military discussing the political problems of being deployed and having to make choices about which areas get hammered and which areas don't? Yeah, that's one. Uh um, I'd like to ask you about, well, I be, represent beyond zero emissions and so we're interested in mitigation but also drawing down the emissions that are there and there's a lot to be done in that field. And I think back to the New Deal where your President Roosevelt employed thousands of unemployed people to plant three billion trees and the army was brought in to build barracks and roads to help them get that task done and that's a, that's a historic example of something good that the army can do. You mentioned they helped out get the lights on in New York after Sandy. So can you tell me some applications that the defence forces of the world could be put to, jobs they could be put to in this climate emergency? Yeah, you know, we've seen uh, increasing um, demand for the the U.S. military to um, provide support to civilian authorities in, in the case of domestic natural disasters. And, um, you know, the, the military is very concerned about having to increasingly provide that domestic disaster relief. Um, not that it doesn't want to help people in need, of course, uh, it is about homeland defense, but this whole area has had to grow a great deal um, in recent years. And 
you know, the, the military has been arguing that it doesn't want to continue to have to, you know, do this. And it doesn't want to have to make those hard choices that you describe between, you know, are we going to help only certain areas and not others? Now, you know, the U.S., uh, in the National Guard is the first military force that's called out, and the National Guard is, you know, called out at, at the direction of the governor of the state and not the federal authorities. But if those are insufficient to address the problem, as they were in, let's say, in Katrina and Superstorm Sandy, then federal forces can be mobilized, and they have been. But it's, uh, I think it's, it's deep concern, and the military doesn't want to have to get into uh, and be used in a political way like that at the local level. Oh, okay. So it, you, both of these two questions related. You know, the, the um, military, U.S. military, um, we've had a lot of veterans coming back in the last decade of wars, the longest wars that the, you know, the U.S. has been involved with in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so there's been a whole issue of sort of veterans' employment. And there have been many initiatives now to, many veterans are going into what we call the green tech sector. Um, you know, everything from energy um, to green buildings to other, um, other renewables. So it's a, it's a very vibrant area of uh, transition and reemployment. Um, and many also go into providing humanitarian assistance and disaster relief because they've been very moved by their experience. I think in the film, Age of Consequences, one of the speakers, Michael Breen, who was an Army officer, then he helped uh, provide humanitarian assistance, and then he joined an organization that's run a program called Operation Free, which has been mostly about organizing military event vets uh, around clean energy, free us from oil. That's what the free means. And they've been on a campaign for over five years now um, to really focus on uh, energy as a security issue with the, with the younger veterans population, those who have served in, in the last decade of, of war. So I think that, uh, you know, they're trying to change very much, and we've a lot, done a lot of work with them. They're really trying to change the conversation in the U.S. too. And also creating a lighter footprint when you deploy, um, yes, that's very much part of it uh, because, you know, a lighter footprint means less waste, uh, more efficient. I mean, war is not a particularly environmentally friendly exercise, but, you know, often it's the goal, you know, when it's humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, you don't want to leave, you know, you want to have as light a footprint as you can. The last word goes to scientist Dr. Malta Meinshausen, whose Australian-German Climate and Energy College hosted the evening. Those places like Syria, the Mediterranean, and other corn belts are likely going to be affected by droughts. Drier places are going to get drier as a first order approximation. And that can have severe consequences. Yes, there are multiple factors coming in, but 2010 to, 2007 to 2010, we had a record heat wave uh, or drought in Syria. We had 1.5 million people going from the countryside to the cities. What we currently see in the news, does it have something to do with climate change? Well, we better don't be wrong on this. And 
we in 2015, what we are currently seeing is just a normal average year in terms of the heat waves, in terms of the floods, in terms of the overall global warming that we are going to see. So the targets at the Paris Agreement, one and a half and two degrees, we can write coral reefs, coral reefs largely off, unfortunately. There, might, there will be pockets that are going to sustain with, if we take out carbon dioxide of the air and we go to lower temperature levels again, we might see regeneration, but our predictions at the moment is we are not going to see the large areas of coral reefs. And even more important, we see large humanitarian effects, most likely. And we better don't be wrong on this. So tonight is a pleasure to have Sherry here to shed light on one of the issues this has, like, for example, a positive economic narrative on why climate change is good as an innovation and technology agenda, likewise, the national security narrative has the potential to bridge the divide, the partisan divide of why climate change mitigation is the right way to go. Thank you tonight to Luke Taylor from Breakthrough, who brought Sherry to Australia, David Spratt and Ian Dunlop, who spirited her around, and Malta Meinshausen, who we just heard from, the host. Most of all, thank you to Sherry Goodman, who is now a senior fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Naval Analysis and Military Advisory Board. Thank you. Thanks to the team, Viv for the recording, Jody, Teddy, Roger for the podcast, plus Andy on panel, and my name is Kurtz. And I hope you feel energized by the pro- program today. They say that mu- music is a savage beast, but I think action is better. Things begin to change when you, the listener, stand up and begin to act, whether by exercising your rights within the economy as a consumer, within society as a communicator, or politically as a voter or activist. This Thursday, you can flex your muscle as an activist and consumer by heading down to the AGL offices at 699 Burke Street, Docklands, Victoria. To let the knuckle-draggers at AGL know that a reduction by only 20% of fossil fuels by 2050 is just not good enough. And here we thought dinosaurs were extinct. I've heard that people will be dressing up in their animal onesies, which is a reference to AGL creating a marine response unit to assist with troubled sea life. On the surface, this sounds like great, like a great idea, until you realise it smacks of a cynical corporate smokescreen because so many sea creatures will be critically impacted by the rise in sea levels, particularly amphibians, due to climate change accelerated by AGL's lack of ambition. On a side note, more info on the impact of climate change on Australian wildlife in the future will be available through our program in the Creature Feature in two, two weeks' time. So head on down to the AGL offices, 699 Burke Street in Docklands. For more info, look up FFFARK space AGL space action in Facebook. Next up, this hashtag Stop Adani Action is, is still in full swing. There is, an, is a Get Up campaign on where, where you can meet like-minded people and begin to work together to pressure key marginal coalition MPs to stop the Adani mine. This is some real grassroots stuff. For anyone in, Octa- in Australia 
concerned about climate change, you would see Adani as the embodiment of rusted on and blinkered government policy. $1 billion in public funding subsidies, a paltry response in new jobs, the final nail in the coffin for the Barrier Reef. There is a meeting this Thursday at 6pm at Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton. Bring a fully charged phone and headset if you have one, and you won't need to use your own credit. For more info, head to field.getup.org.au forward slash Melbourne underscore community underscore calling underscore calendar. That's field.getup.org.au forward slash Melbourne underscore community underscore calling underscore calendar. Now, Save Albert Park are taking a break from broadcasting until October 9th. That's usually the next show. And today, we will be playing part one of Making Contacts, Sacrifice Zones. This is the first in two-part series focusing on the northwest of North America and the pressure from the fossil fuel industry to transform a region of iconic landscapes and environmental stewardship into a global center of shipping fossil fuels. Barbara Bernstein investigates how proposals for petrochemical development in the Pacific Northwest threatens the region's core cultural, social and environmental values. And finally, thank you to everyone who's contributed so far to our Radiothon appeal. We will read your names out next week. We haven't made our target yet, so please don't hesitate to hesitate to call us now on 0394198377. Thank you. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.